Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshaldon, and I'm at the Canadian Canoe Museum. In 1986, I went on a 70-day canoe trip following the Voyager Highway across northern Saskatchewan and into Manitoba, following the Churchill River. This was the same route that Alexander Mackenzie used to canoe to the Arctic and later the Pacific Oceans. My guest today is Jeremy Ward, the curator of the Canadian Canoe Museum. Initially a volunteer, Jeremy joined the staff in 1997 and has been the curator of the museum since 2009. He had some awfully interesting experiences before he joined the museum, including coordinating a field school for Trent University in the Nunavut community of Pennington, as well as cabinet making and doing archaeological work in Greece. A graduate of Trent University's Canadian Study and Indigenous Studies programs, Jeremy's work has included curating or producing more than 10 major exhibitions. He has also researched and been featured in various documentaries. Now, back at the museum, he researched and then with a team of volunteers actually constructed a 36-foot birch bark canoe. This was the famous Canon de Maître, the workhorse of the 18th and early 19th century fur trade in Canada. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Greg. Great to have you here. Well, as you know, the Champlain Society is dedicated to the preservation of documentary history in Canada. Now, this museum preserves, restores, and interprets the material history of Canada, but it too depends on the documentary history of this country. Most of your exhibits have explanations. So what documentary and other sources have you relied on to create these explanations? Hmm. Well, uh, certainly as a nod to the Champlain Society, I would say that uh, they're a go-to. We have a nearly complete set. We were also recently given uh, over 14,000 different titles from a private collector. Um, these are books dedicated to canoeing in the Canadian North, historical pieces dating back to the 18th century. Uh, so we've very recently um, increased the size of our own library um, almost exponentially overnight. And so uh, certainly from the printed page, we are doing rather well for the published works. Um, we also do re work with uh, other collections, uh, reaching out as one does online, uh, for support from other archival collections. And increasingly, I'm proud to say, this museum is working more with oral histories and first-person narratives uh, in communities, particularly with a collection that uh, owes its entire being to Indigenous traditions around uh, across Canada and around the world. Um, there are important perspectives to be brought to bear uh, through oral histories as well. So tell us, what is a museum curator anyway? <laughs> if I know, uh, I think it's, it's one of these catch-all terms that means whatever you make of it. I know there are certain expectations of it, clearly, in conservateur en français. Uh, I do like the idea, in a sense, in England, that the, the title sometimes means a keeper, or is referred to as a keeper, if that is the case. This is a keeping place, uh, which is an affectionate term. Some friends of ours from uh, Curve Lake First Nations uh, referred to this as. However, a keeper, to me, also sounds a bit like a gatekeeper. And if I aspire to do anything 
at all in my role as curator. It is to make a collection like this, an extraordinary collection like this, more accessible, to be shared, to be loved, and to be cared for uh, appropriately. So uh, my role as a curator, I would see aspirationally to make room for, for others' voices to be shared and heard. I think if I set a goal for myself, that would be something I would measure uh, my work uh, as uh, in, in years to come. I certainly derive a great deal of satisfaction being a facilitator between the public and how they engage with our collection. And you and I are sitting in a 30,000 square foot room in a warehouse with about 600 souls uh, around us, canoes, kayaks, from around uh, across Canada and around the world. And seeing all of these belongings, these artifacts, in, in, on racks and, and on mounts all around us like this, it doesn't take long to find the inspiration of connecting this piece to that piece to this piece to that piece and starting to build up what becomes later on as an exhibit. Uh, it, it's, it's where the themes and the narratives and the threads that are picked and plucked for a new exhibit happen. And I find a, a space like this very inspiring. Well, Jeremy, for sure, it's an absolutely remarkable room. It's cavernous. Of course, the public doesn't see this room. I'm fortunate enough to see it. But let's go back to the main exhibit mm -hmm. uh, center, the museum. And can you just describe and give us a very quick guide to what the museum is, uh, looks like and how it's laid out? Sure. So we uh, really wanted to pay tribute, as the name of the organization might suggest, um, pay tribute to the importance of the idea of the canoe or the canoe itself. And when we have a simple title, the Canadian Canoe Museum, by that we imply um, a little incompletely the Canoe and Kayak Museum um, because we see uh, this, them as this sort of extensions of the same idea. At least the collection represents both of these branches um, very much so. So there's a, a real exploration of the importance to the culture, heritage, geography uh, that is found in Indigenous peoples and the in engagement between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples, those interactions, the intersections, free contact uh, and contemporary. And it's a bit jumbled in terms of chronology, and that's deliberately so. It's not to bury the ancient canoeing roots in the country just in the past, because the that legacy and that resonance continues to endure today, certainly in Indigenous communities across the North uh, and across Canada, Turtle Island. So there's a strong exploration of the canoe and how it keeps turning up at, in all sort of important moments and quiet moments in Canadian culture, heritage, media. Uh, and then we've over the years done a host of other exhibits that give us a chance perhaps to poke a bit of fun at ourselves um, as a themed collection saying we're going to take this one simple idea and explore where it leads us. One could look at the canoe um, and as an opportunity for technological innovation or emerging roles of women in society or uh, its popularity in media for advertising and commercial media as a motif and a tool. So we, we do actually find we've gone in all different directions with this, not just... Uh, not not limited by any means to any kind of chronological or, or uh, rhetorical approach to Canada, Canadian history. Now, the museum itself has a fascinating history. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It um, 
its founder uh, might admit, uh, the late Dr. Kirk Whipper might admit that uh, he never intended to build a museum, that it almost came about by accident. Uh, he was a professor at U of T and a passionate, larger-than-life character. If anybody listening has met Kirk, they would nod. Um, he uh, was also the camp director of a, a summer camp up in Halliburton District uh, near the town of Dorset. And so the story goes, uh, he was one year given a, a 19th century dugout from the Warsaw area, not far from my house, near Peterborough. Uh, and it was a, a piece of heritage that he hung in the dining hall to explain, provide a historical context, perhaps, for the canoe instruction that the kids were learning on the water by day. And that one canoe attracted two more old canoes, and word gets out that Kirk is collecting old canoes, and, and before long, the roof rafters in the dining hall were full, and he was starting to use other outbuildings. And eventually, with the help of a log <laughs> building instructor and, and the, that year's crop, or several years' crops of summer campers, they built a canoe museum out of logs at this summer camp at Camp Candelore, and it slowly became full to the rafters, and it was this most extraordinary collection that was sometimes known internationally better than it was locally, and it became this little legend tucked away in the woods. Well, that project had a life cycle, as these things often do, and by the late 1980s was running out of room and momentum uh, in its location, and it was looking for a new home and uh, perhaps new stewardship to go along with it, and so the collection would move from the camp. And here in Peterborough, an inspired group of professors and other local citizens got together and made a pitch for the collection to come to Peterborough with some affiliations with Trent University. And Peterborough being a former industrial uh, hub, um, it was a big producer, bigger than its size would suggest. The, uh, an abandoned outboard motor factory became its new home, purchased for a dollar, and that's where we're sitting now. So this big warehouse allowed all of these canoes to be gathered in from various barns and outbuildings, be brought down and unpacked. And Canoe Museum Round 2 was born here on this property, on a property built for a dollar. And we've been growing this now for almost a quarter century here at, on this site. Always missing from the equation has been the proximity to water. And it's been considered by our team now for over a decade, uh, indeed longer, that it really is a temporary home and we're going to move again and we want to connect this collection and the, the programming because this is the, the collection serves the programming here. The museum's primary outreach or engagement then is through the programming it offers to its guests and its public. As you say, the public don't generally get to come back here. It's not heated. It's not set up for public occupancy. So we do it on special occasion. And so for us to be able to walk in the front, paddle out the back and get that resonance uh, with the on-water programming and offer a much bigger repertoire of, of program offerings to our guests has always been a key. And that'll be our next step and that'll be Canoe Museum 3.0. <laughs> well, that's great. So what do we learn about Canadian history uh, from this museum that just wouldn't be possible by simply reading documents and histories and narratives? Mm. Well, I think probably most people in my position uh, and and many others would say that reading a document is one thing but sit, standing next to the actual object that was there 
nothing can replace that. And you can see the scars, certainly in a proofed collection like these, where these um, so-called artifacts used to be traveled on the water and portaged over trails or dragged up on beaches and covered with cedar mats or carried on roof racks down the 401 to an Olympic race. So standing next to the real object, nothing can replace that. And frankly, we are finding the same thing now with the pandemic as we retool so much of our offering to a digital platform, something we've been doing for a number of years, but still how do you convey the intimacy of standing next to an object and leaning in and, and looking at the scars, scrapes, tool marks, the expertise of the craftsperson, all of that, the repairs, the modifications, and it helps you connect with the history and the object can be kind of a portal to that historical point as much as the historical record can. And so I see a, a keeping place, a, a museum collection like this plays an incredibly important role for this side of the heritage and, and, and history and cultures that are found in Canada. Well, an American friend once said to me, says, what is with you Canadians and canoes? What's the connection? <laughs> And I note that one of your exhibits inside the main building said basically a land of water that connects us. And this is the idea that really the history of the canoe in some respects and the canoe roots of this country are really a history of the country that would become Canada. So can you just describe your own thoughts as well as feelings about this? Well, I guess I would, I would comment on the way you describe that, that the canoe routes on this landscape, of course, had nothing to do with the founding or development of this country, essentially because they were known long before it. And uh, certainly if you read it, any of the good travelers written, um, published in the Champlain series, you'll see that they have guides at the front of their canoes and Mackenzie was no, no exception in his crossing in 93. So the, the, the knowledge of connecting these canoe routes then sees the landscape from a very different perspective, which we've lost touch with today, many of us. Now you've done some serious canoe routes, uh, canoe, canoe trips, and, and uh, we were talking about that. But to imagine the landscape then as a series of watersheds is a very different, very different perspective than it is of intersections of national highways and so on. And so, it is the water flowing down slope and how they connect to each other, and that's the human knowledge. And then for, from a canoeist perspective, certainly in the interior, in the woodland, it's all of the old nostagan, it's the, the portage routes that are these sort of artificial connectors that, that when you finally can't connect one body of water to the other, and that is that human, those, that human webwork across the country that um, is a really wonderful and poetic portrait of, of human, humankind on this country. And the, the resonance of the canoe in Canada today and our connection to the landscape, the canoe gives it gives you a very unique glimpse into that relationship we have with the water, and it may be it may be real. Um, you know, the canoe may, if you're an Olympic paddler, uh, Canada Canada turns out a lot of very good ones. But if you're also um, still trapping uh, or canoeing and fishing or using your canoe as a hunting guide uh, device, making a live a livelihood with it today, the canoe also lives in our imagination. It's a bit like North, and, it, and it, it's something that the Canadians sort of tend to feel is especially ours. And I think that there are many places around the world that would take us on with that declaration, certainly. 
in communities where the canoe is every bit as deeply embedded and entrenched in the folklore and livelihood mythology and, and sense of place as it is here. Uh, however, there is something very uniquely, quietly Canadian about that association affiliation with the canoe. And like you said, this is a exquisitely Canadian collection and an exquisitely Canadian museum, I think. And I, I, find, I know what we've heard from a number of people who say, I can't believe there is a canoe museum. <laughs> and they're writing from Medicine Hat, meaning they may not be um, joining us anytime soon. <laughs> But they also have often said things like, I'm just damn glad we have one. And, uh, and, and so I think there is that sense that Canada deserves a, a portrait of itself expressed through this collection. Um, and, and we're able to go to a lot of different places with a collection like this. Well, that's for sure. It's so unique. Um, can you describe the extent to which you've used the journals and the narratives that have been published by the Champlain Society for well over a century as sort of source material in detail for your historical research on uh, the canoes in this collection? Well, certainly in the, the, a lot of the fur trade writings, you'll see uh, that we've been working with the, the Champlain secondary sources. We did not have access to the original copies until recently. Uh, and so uh, the words of Franklin and Mackenzie um, Thompson, they're all up on the walls in our exhibit galleries and the, and the Champlain series uh, publications have been really important, both for uh, instances where we've used citations, but also at times to rule out some theories that are emerging as we're developing new exhibit content. Um, without getting into the weeds on it, I, I was looking into the life and passions of a fascinating Quebec gentleman um, named Campbell Mellis Douglas, who would settle uh, near Peterborough. Uh, he served in the British Army and had an incredible career, earned a Victoria Cross on the, off the Andaman Islands on a ship-to-shore rescue. Uh, in his lifetime, he and his sons collected over 50 canoes at the family farm near Peterborough. And in 1885, he was uh, sent out to Fish Creek to set up a field hospital during the Northwest Rebellion as the Dominion troops were pushing into Métis homeland. and uh, During the Métis War of Independence. There we are, yes. Uh, there's, uh, there are, importantly, two different perspectives on that. And uh, so here, a very Caucasian-educated surgeon, a doctor, um, who was also an expert in small boats and canoes, he had patented a folding canoe and had hoped to, I think, make it rich selling these folding canoes to the government and the army and, and everyone else. Well, as it happened, as he was being sent to the front, his, uh, the steamer, the North Coat, he was traveling on, uh, goes aground on a sandbar. And he, on, he says, never fear, lads, I have one of my trusty folding canoes. And he springs it into shape and loads it up with his bone saws and his laudanum and paddles 200 miles down the, the Saskatchewan River to the front and serves out the rebellion uh, doing the work that he did. But I was looking for a number of possibilities and, and that was, uh, I guess, most recently was was uh, digging into the Champlain. Well, that's records. great. Yeah. Now, I know you have a collections researcher now. Can you describe uh, what this individual does uh, and the relationship between that position and the artifacts in the museum? 
Well, this is a new position for us. Uh, we're thrilled to have her on board. She, my goodness, is uh, a veteran, incredibly accomplished, and um, worked with collections, Indigenous collections predominantly. And she's worked with uh, collections uh, around the world, uh, but predominantly from the UK with UK and North America uh, Indigenous collections. And now her work has been in part on, on hold because of the uh, the pandemic. We're just working our way through, um, although she's been carrying on from her desk, as many people do. And uh, the, the work that she is involved with is object and collections research. So what we, what, you know, as we know what we've been able to tell from provenance files, records, and et cetera, and then uh, all kinds of other input data over the years associated with objects. Um, this person, Laura, Dr. Laura Pierce, is now uh, following the threads from a number of selected pieces in our collection to see where they lead. And these will take her to archival collections elsewhere. Uh, and spend the time and uh, bring the expertise that she has to bring that back again. Um, and in, in some cases, the real joy of that will be if we can reconnect an object that is in our collection with a community that it perhaps came from. You and I are sitting next to a late 18th century birch bark canoe that was acquired during the American Revolution um, somewhere perhaps around the shores of Quebec City. And... Uh, it is not in excellent condition. It's been stored in a barn and, and used over in Wales for the last two and a half centuries. And apart from the work that it deserves, uh, we would love nothing more than to connect with the community that it was acquired from and create an opportunity for trust and for them to share their stories uh, with the Canoe Museum th because of this, this canoe. Well, what you're describing is a pretty intimate uh, connection then between documentary research on the one hand and the exhibits, the physical material exhibits here. Can you give a couple of other examples of exhibits in your collection where they either have this kind of intimate connection that you can describe uh, or they're interesting in their own sense of describing a history that we might not otherwise understand except through the material exhibit? Well, uh, that's a really interesting question. I could get lost in a decade uh, of, of exhibit development here because usually I'll, you know, as you start picking away at, a, at an idea, it just absorbs you uh, more and more and connects to new stories, new opportunities. For instance, with a, a colleague here at the Canoe Museum a number of years ago, John Summers, we developed an exhibit called uh, Can I Canoe You Up the River? And it was the history of canoes and romance. John wrote the program for this, but the fascinating story that was emerging from these canoe clubs in the early 20th century, 19 teens, 1915, was that they became hotspots for youth, sanctioned by parents to get together and for young boys and girls who no longer had to meet in the parlor of the house, but then on the front porch, and now at these canoe clubs in these liveries. And this carries on, of course, up until the 50s, 60s, and uh, to a degree, I suppose, almost to today. But that the canoe clubs became a, a, an approved location for courtship in, a, in emerging uh, patterns of courtship where a boy and a girl could take a canoe, rent it, float in plain view in front of the seated parents and the rest of the community. Nothing untoward would happen. Uh, but the, what the fascinating part of it is maybe that, but it's also the fact that the canoe makers responded by 
lengthening the decks, the, the coverings at the ends of the canoes, in response to market pressure, if you will, thereby pushing the occupants of the canoe together, tangling their feet together, which was preferred, squeezing the chaperone out of the canoe and leaving them on shore. And so it really was a canoe made for two. And everything in this room around us draws, you know, a themed collection is a hard collection to say, what are the limits? And the idea of a canoe or a kayak, the idea of a canoe is, is something that really doesn't have a hard end because at some point you just keep increasing the modifications from the original idea, pointed at both ends, perhaps paddled forward, facing forward, and it turns into something enormous like an aircraft carrier or a sea uh, shipping cargo ship because you've just increased and kept adding to the modifications of it. Now, when an object is this small, and it would go the same with footwear or others, everything that you do to it comes at a cost. And so that analysis then of what is baked into the bones of this object and the trade-offs that it came with becomes to me quite fascinating then. What were the priorities of this? And so that courtship canoe, and we were exploring this in part in that exhibit on, on courtship, was... You know, this is, this is how do you breed out all the functionality out of a canoe, really. You can't pick them up. They're incredibly heavy. They're beautiful. They're dripping in mahogany everywhere and beautiful brass trimmings and so on. And this one had a phonograph. This one had a phonograph, indeed. So I think that's, um, that, that might be, I mean, all exhibits that we've worked on in, the, in past years would, would have something like that. I, I really enjoyed working with another colleague on... Uh, one called Canoes to Go, um, the search for a truly portable boat. And it, it was a kind of a whimsical title, but what it was is the opportunities of new technology over a century and a half brought to bear on a very simple idea. And how do you take a portable boat and make it even more portable and what roles did it play? And that took us into the footsteps of Sir George Simpson Franklin, uh, the, the final Franklin expedition, kept traveling in a modified Halkett boat cloak and uh, the idea here was that a, um, a great coat could be made with an inflatable bladder inside of it and a little concertina bellows in one of your pockets. And you could, if you needed a canoe, you could just inflate your big great cloak and you'd <laughs> hop into a floating canoe. Um, well, it seems ridiculous. And, and Halkett, who, who uh, developed this in the mid-19th century, even tried one out in the Bay of Biscay, uh, which is known for being rough water, but he was disappointed that it was dead calm when he was there, which is why in the, in the engravings you see him floating in a top hat holding an umbrella for a sail. But Sir John Franklin, uh, Erebus and Terror were equipped with two expanded versions of these on their expedition. And this is a two-man version that was a backpack. Uh, whether they used them or not, certainly Sir John Ray uh, in his hunt for Franklin, found that these uh, Halkett inflatable canoes were absolutely the thing to have in the Arctic. Even they, they took longer to inflate in the cold weather, but there were times when water crossings could only be achieved by, by a boat, and it meant that he didn't have to carry along a canoe the entire time. Ray traveled incredibly lightly, as you know. But also in there was wartime technologies repurposed and how... 
all of the great innovations of war that they give to society, you know, for not peaceful purposes, then quickly have to find new markets for to, to survive after the fact. And this was brought to canoe making. Of course, Grumman canoes would be one, but there were also other innovations. Um, so that was that was another one where we're not trying to explore one singular history, but we're looking into a single element, a theme, thematic approach to an exhibit. Uh, doing a deep dive in it, but then as you've worked your way through the exhibit, you can look back where you come from and thereby actually achieve something of a good historical perspective on it. And, and that's sometimes the, the ruse in this. That's the fun part of, of this, is crafting an exhibit to tease you into um, some larger historical learnings by, by enticing you with these, these small stories along the way that just lead you down to, to an end. Well, Jeremy, this is a, a fascinating museum. I hope as many Canadians can come out and see it as possible. Uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. My guest today was Jeremy Ward. Our subject was the Canadian Canoe Museum. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallton, and this podcast was recorded at the Canadian Canoe Museum in Peterborough, Ontario, on July 14, 2020. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt. We look forward to you joining us again.